0: Hi, it's Wednesday. I'm actually pressed for time. I may end up doing this in installments, because um, I've got a very, very busy schedule. But uh, uh, today's talk is, is requested by, it's sponsored by Srili really Bornstein. Because uh, he, ta- he told me he was interested. He's a big fan of the Kozha Glover, the Eretz Tzvi. And wasn't somebody I ordinarily would have thought of, but since he was kind enough to be a sponsor before and now those people who are steady sponsors I'm always willing to accommodate when possible uh... and the more i gave it some thought the more i thought it's, it's an interesting subject um because probably people don't know that much about it and uh... the history there is very rich though so i have to watch myself not to get off too much on a tangent um, so this is uh... what you what you call the go to kosher glove uh, who was, was a very sweet farmer, who was a Polish uh lived all of his life in the belly button of Poland, in the heart of Poland, what they call Congress Poland, and uh, was murdered by Hitler. So he was born in 1884, he died in the war, probably around 60 or so when they killed him, something like that, And uh, which is, of course, part of the general tragedy of Polish Jewry. Central Poland is exactly where they exterminated all the Jews. And uh, the... Background here is very complex because you know I don't usually do Hasidic figures. It's a it's a complicated subject, um, but the Kasher was not a Hasidic Rebbe. He was a Hasidic Rav, and he was a Hasidic Posek, and he was a Hasidic Rosh Hashiva. So, uh, but he wasn't a Hasidic Rebbe. So I just mentioned four types of positions. There is a Rav, it's a Rosh Hashiva. Uh, it's a Posek, it's a, what do you call it, an a Rebbe. They're not identical, okay? Uh, the Hasidic movement, may I remind you, is a movement of modern Judaism. It's like, Reformed Judaism is modern, you know, it's a bit different, obviously, but it never existed before. In the time of Moshe Rabbein, there was no Hasidus. Moshe Rabbein was not a Hasidic Rebbe, otherwise, the Jewish people wouldn't give him all this trouble. <laughs> yeah. If you're a Hasid, you follow the Rebbe. You know, Moshe had the other way around. David Melch was not a but The Rambam and the Ramah and so forth, the Raj, were not Chazidic Rebbes. The Balabatim didn't listen to him. <laughs> this is part of their of their life. A rub is a different story. Rub says something, you listen, you don't listen. A Rebbe says something, you got to listen, if you're a member of the group. Now, um, therefore, the office of Rebbe Admor is invented. It's a new one from the 18th century, 19th century. Uh, so listen well. At least I'll try to make out a skull here while I have time. Uh, I might have to go do something later. The, the, there are different positions over here. Most of the people I've spoken about in these podcasts, your usual guttle, if I can use that terminology, was uh, an Avbazin or, let's say, a Rosh Okay? And uh, my predilection has usually been for the people who are Avbazin, as you can tell. Uh, not always, but often. And... Av Bezin means the guy's a salaried official, an employee of a community. He's the Rav of a Kehillah. Uh and therefore he's the official posting that Kehillah. and he's in charge of the Bezin system, passing the shows. That's what the no Nehuda was, that's what the Rama was, that's what Marshal was, that's who the Rasha basically basically was, and so on and so forth. Right? Uh that's that's who they were. Um the Av Bezin's in classic times, also were yeshivas very often. So, the Nebuchadnezzar had his own yeshiva, and the Ramah had his own yeshiva, and the Marshal had his own yeshiva, and so forth and so on. Okay? You know, when the Chavazzar was there, he had also a yeshiva, small, large. But what does the word yeshiva mean? A yeshiva can be a personal yeshiva, the yeshiva can be institutional yeshiva. Uh, keep that in mind. The old school was he had a personal yeshiva, that people were drawn. By someone's charisma, and if the financial wherewithal was there, to go and learn by plony. So I heard that the uh, I don't know the Shagasai uh, just became the rabbi in this town, and he's inviting those who can afford it to come and learn with him every day. And I want to be one of them, or uh, you know Yonasan Eibshitz, or uh, like I said before, you know the or somebody like that. Okay, Panamirus, you know somebody like that. Now um, that's That kind of yeshiva is totally personal because people are drawn to this person so they'll go and learn by him this amount of time, that amount of time, whatever it is. Then there's something else which is a much more recent invention called the institutional yeshiva. In which case, the yeshiva is like a college, uh, a university, in the sense that it has an institutional identity independent of the person running it. So... For example, in Israel, you have when Rav Shach died, they got another one. When this one died, they got another one, like that. You see? The mere Yeshiva, this one was there, and then he died, they got another one to be the head, and so on and so forth, near Israel, you know, like that. Uh, that's a much more recent thing. That's the development of the Lithuanian Yeshivas. Everything I'm talking about today will be negated to our hero. Okay? I'm not just spouting off here. It's all by way of background. Uh, and it's because I'm trying to explain to people I have no idea. What would be the background of of a Kozheglover? What's the historical context? Uh, even historians today are only starting in the last fifteen years to sink their teeth in this very interesting Tukufa when he lived in the late eighteen hundreds and the first part of the nineteen hundreds, prior to the Shoah, prior to the Holocaust. It's not, especially the Hasidim in Central Poland. It's not a subject that's so well known by the historians, uh, the hagiographers, of course. Throwing a lot of lies. That's the problem with hagiography. Uh, and, you know, it's not so easy for researchers to pick apart and do the job of Borer. But uh, it's happening you now. Some serious scholars are working this kind of stuff. Dissertations are coming out, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, so there's the Rov, the Abbasin, there's a Rosh Hashiva. Often the two posts were identical, but not necessarily. Yet many people in Jewish history who are heads of a yeshiva, either personal or institutional, and were not rabbanim of a kihil. That's not what they wish to do, or that's not how it worked out. That's not what they were. So you have a rabbi and a rosh Sheva. And today, the two posts are really distinct. It's very rare. I can hardly think of any cases where somebody's a rabbi of a kihil, at the same time as a rosh yeshiva. I would say rosh is a full-time job. Wouldn't you? Now, um, that's that. And then, uh, posik, Means, there's a guy, Rishalish and that that sort of thing, which again is not identical. Yes, you, you, you have this, you have these types, you have those types, and then is a is a Hasidic Rebbe with a tish, with Hasidim, with the the chatzar, you know, with the people coming and with the brachas and all the rest of it. Now, um, in the, let me put it this way: the Balshter was not a Rav of a kahala. See, Well is unique, but you know, after him. Uh, they weren't uh, our basins usually, but you could be. Uh, you know, uh, what is call it called? Labians and Berdeshev was a Rov and Berdeshev. so he wore two hats. He's a Hasidic Rebbe, but he also was a Rav. Uh, you've heard of the Satmar Rav, not Satmar Rebbe. Well, he's both. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Uh, uh, the Belzer Rav, but the Belzer Rebbe. He was both. But there are other people who just a Rebbe. And uh, you could just best a Rebbe, an Admar, and you're not uh, in charge of any one kehila, and you're not, you don't have a, a yeshiva, and you're still a reb anyway. So, when the Hasidic movement started, it, it, it started not in Poland proper, but in Ukraine. The Balshemtov didn't live in Poland; he lived in Ukraine. Now, at that time, Ukraine was part of the Kingdom of Poland, if you want to look at it that way, and the official language of the government was Polish. But the population were Ukrainian, didn't speak Polish; they, they're, they're Ukrainian. That's interesting. People don't know that. The Valshemtov and the Magadan Meszrich; these people actually living in the, in the Ukrainian part. The story of Hasidus is that it spread into Poland, meaning it spread westward into Poland, and it didn't get past Poland. It didn't get much into Lithuania, and it didn't get into Germany. That's the story of the history of Hasidus. Okay, but Poland it certainly did get into. But when the Hasidic movement uh, penetrated, invaded Poland. Here I'm talking about the heart of Poland what we call in history, and where our hero lived all of his life, is what's called Congress Poland. Because after the Napoleonic Wars, when they had a peace conference at the Congress of Vienna, they drew up new borders. And without giving you too many historical details, that'll probably be boring to you, Um, they said that the former kingdom of Poland will now be reduced to the heart of the belly button of Poland. Just the central area of Warsaw, Lublin, Lodz, those kind of places where this population is all Polish, uh, all Polish going No non-Polish minorities the way it used to be in the old kingdom of Poland. So the Jews that live there live in a very Polish uh, environment. Now, I realize I'm saying things for many of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You all think all of Poland, is, you probably think all the languages there are the same, all the ethnicities are the same. But Eastern Europe is a cauldron of competing and very sharply different ethnicities, even if they all look the same to an American. <laughs> Uh, now, uh, when Hasidus hit Poland, Central Poland, which was after the death of the Magda of Mezrich, is not even close of Lublin people like that. So it took a certain form, and many historians have written on this. And uh, to dumb it down to simplest elements, uh, when Hasidus hit Central Poland, it uh, how should I do? it blended together with the existing uh, very from I'll use the word Litvish culture to produce that's a term that you'll be familiar with to produce the Polish Hasidists which was very heavy into learning and learning and uh, uh, now they're Hasidim and they totally are into all the Hasidic stuff I'm serious but at the same time they mixed it together with a very heavy emphasis on and I would even say an elitist kind of attitude which was not there in the time and in the Ukrainian Hasidism um, I'll just give you a, a very quick story I had an uncle uh, who was very old when he died in 1975 when I was a little young and um, he, I used to visit in Minneapolis once on a blue moon and he, he, and he this is around 1900 I'm talking about something like that or 1910 and he went to Krakow and Lee was at the time and it's before the First World War and he so he was dressed like a chassid you know and he and, and not only that but i mean he was like in some little chassidic uh, yeshiva there or something like that actually not a little place here it's a and he went into a Stiebel and he said what time it's a daven mincha. what time is mincha and they kicked him out they said this is a gerestibel here we don't daven, we learn ah, that's not true of course they daven. but i'm just saying it's it's a, it's a uh superior it's, it's a very, uh, you know, like I said, Litvish elitist superior attitude. Mm, you're here for uh, uh You loser. This is a place for learning. Uh, that came very much to be associated with the Polish Khotshidism. And uh, the epitome of this is the Kotzker, of course, in the early 1800s, who, uh, you know, spurned the people who, uh, you know, put on airs and all the rest of it. Do you learn? Can you learn? Are you into MS? Are you full of baloney? You know, he was a very sharp critic of people and things like that. There are many legends and misinformation about the Kutzker, but this part is true, that, uh, you know, uh, let me me put it this way, the Kutzker had its own little yeshiva, or whatever you want to call it, learning group, and the base Medrush or something like that, and um, if you wanted to get in, every three days you had to do like a Chabur with a (laughs) Chirish. You get it? in front of the others. Uh, if, if you went three days without a serious Khidish, a, a serious Kash, and a serious terrorist or something like that, then they booted you out. That's a boot camp. Now, what does that mean? The Marines want a few good men. <laughs> okay? And uh, uh, the Khutskar son in law was Avni Nazar, um, who was the rabbi of our hero. Uh, the famous Avni Nazar, Sagat simply means that when the Khutskar died, which in the 1850s, around close to 1860, when the Kotzker died, uh, under weird circumstances, uh, he, he had several disciples, including his son-in-law, and one was the Chedushimim, and one was the uh Naser, and he moved around here, there, 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 and he actually had trouble, if I remember the story correctly, he had trouble finding the right place in central Poland, because um, he wanted to be a rov, but he also wanted to be a Rebbe. And a lot of communities, they basically said, if you want to be a rov, then none of this Rebbe business, you know. Uh, because Poland wasn't all Hasidic, even the central Poland. I would say there's big debates among the historians. How large was the Hasidic portion of Eastern European Jewry? That's a fascinating topic, but that's for historical um, seminar, not for you guys. And uh, the bottom line is, as far as I know, and it's all I can ever tell you is my best uh, information, what I think. As far as I understand, it, about 40% of Polish Jewry were Hasidic up to the First World War, let's say. And that's a big number, although not like reading the books, that's like 80% or something like that. That's ridiculous. Uh, but still, 40% was a lot. And during the first half of the lifetime of our hero, that's the environment in which he lived. He uh, grew up in a Hasidic, uh, he was born in a Hasidic little village, and uh, his parents were like that, and so on and so forth. So the Avnei Nazar finally came to Sokachev, and there he was able to make a, a go of it, and wear the, the four hats that he wanted to wear. And he was, of course a genius, and a maslich on all four hats. He was a rebbe, the Chesachet rebbe. He was a rebbe, and he plays, has plenty of Hasidis and his writings, you know, he's got all the Hasidic stuff, no question about it. Uh, he was a Rav, uh, and became like one of the foremost rabbonim of basins in Poland in the 1800s. He was a Posek. You don't need me to tell you the Shalosh and Shubhas of the Nazar. He was a Rosh yeshiva. In other words, he made a, 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 a personal yeshiva. Not an institutional yeshiva, a personal yeshiva that people came to learn by him. And if your Rosh yeshiva is also a Rebbe, so it's just an interesting sort of thing. People like myself, or I imagine many listeners, now I have all kinds of people listening. I know from the emails you sent me. But people like me are not used to somebody who's a Rosh shiva also being a Rebbe at the same time. Like... <laughs> I grew up as you can sort of tell, I'm a very lipfisher background. I couldn't imagine Rabbi Ruderman having a tish. I'm <laughs> like, you know, it's it's a you know it's it's off the off the discussion. But people like I'm talking about, like the Sagar he's he's a Rosh yeshiva, but he also has a tish. Although, by the way, I read that he told the yeshiva boys that it's more important to learn. Don't go to the tish. Tish is for the older chassidim and the balabatim. So there's that Lithvisher thing, which is learning, learning, learning. But when you're older or something like that, then you become regular chas, then you join the, the regular group. This is a, a, an interesting world. And, of course, he was a posig, and when I say Rashid, so he he excelled in all these hats. Hey, he was a big tzaddik and so forth. And uh, I would say, wouldn't you, who were the biggest talmudic chachamim in Poland in the middle, late 1800s? I would. I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I would imagine the Sacha and the Gereba, you know, Spasemes, you, Ram, I, I think, yeah, maybe I'm uh, forgetting people. He's up at the top. Now our hero, Harry Siferman, was born, as they say, born in small little places in Central Poland. Doesn't matter the names of the villages, one main thing to you anyway. And uh, he ends up. Uh, it's 1884. So he ends up when he's uh, 12, 13 years old, something like that. Those are the days he used to go off and learn yeshiva. Uh, you know, he learned in a in, in a yeshiva katana beforehand. But he ends up going to the Sakachevar, who's uh, not a young man uh, I think Suchkachovar died I believe in nineteen ten something like that, and he was old and frail and so our hero would be a young guy, approximately not early teens and uh and he learned by and and he became and he went and learned the shiva. and of course he starred he his rocket zoomed because he was a genius in learning okay he 's a genius in learning. And uh, this is the pilot system. And so, since he was very good in learning, see, so he a rich girl. That's what, you know, those rich Balabotum would come to a like this other gentleman. So, I guess, I have a daughter. Tell me your best guy. And, you know, I'll support him for life or throw him 10 years or this, that, and the other. And that's how it went. The only problem is, the economy at that time was those screwball. That very often it happened that there's no security. So, including our hero, uh, you, know, you, you marry a rich girl and five years later she's not rich anymore. And then the father-in-law went bust. You see? Uh, that happened a lot in Jewish history. Still, perhaps it still does. But anyhow, whatever the case is, he's living in an ideal world because he's a chassid and he's got a rebel like you've never seen. He's a giant Talmud chacham and he's got a, 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 a rov like you've never seen. You understand? Um, he, he, everything you want, he's got in his world, a Torah and Hasidus, and uh, he ended up, you know, like I say, with a father-in-law, is loaded, so he can just sit and learn, and uh, at one point, I guess it must have been 25, something like that, so, uh, let's put it this way, he becomes a rov in a small little uh, town, but I say never, these are towns of 20 families, 30 families, 40 families, something like that, these are the years before the First World War, um, in which case, there was a very large population. Modernity had not, ex- had started. And yet some people went off to Derek. But prior to the First World War, especially in the areas I'm talking about in central Poland, it was pretty doggone from and pretty doggone Hasidish. You understand? The uh, Rove still stayed within the Machne, as we would say today. And uh, it's going to be a rabbit in a small town. Europe is full of those, used to be anyway, hundreds of little small places that, uh, you know, they took for a role of somebody who had been a big Talmud by someone else, and um, you can spend your life like that. And hopefully, I guess, at one point, you move up the career ladder, moving from a town of 30 families to a town of 60 families, and eventually moving to a town of 100 families. You see what I'm saying? You know, you move up the chain. That was the career that one would have predicted for our hero. Now, it didn't exactly turn out that way, because when the... Sachachever died, which was, I think, again, 1910. I think. So, our hero would then be 26 years old. That's young. But it was Eloy, you know. So, the Sachachever's son is the Shamish Mishmol. Uh, I imagine you know that. So, the Shamish Mishmol said, like this You be the Rashiba now. Okay? My father wore all the hats. I'm going to be the Rabbi and the Rabbi. You be the Rashiba. Uh Obviously, he knew he's a genius. And second of all, he's totally loyal. No, no, no uh, revolutions over there. Uh, that's his personality. He was a a, a sworn chassid of the Sokolshaber dynasty, and uh, and you're going to have Rosh Hashiva, who's gonna who who has come up through the boot camp, like I said before. You got to be mechadesh all the time. The, you have to have total Bekias. It's the Polish style in which they didn't learn like in Brisk or something like that. But it's a lot of Bekias in Rishonim and Achronim. Uh, a farm that many people never even heard of, and, uh, I mean, you know your stuff, what can I tell you, you know, like so to speak, plus the Now, listen closely. This means that under ordinary circumstances, our hero, instead of being a rabbi in a small town in Poland and then another one, that's one career path, now I had a second career path open to him by the rebbe, by the Shemishmol. This career path would be to be the Rosh of or the Sacha Yeshiva. So the dynasty would run a yeshiva, their students, and even other boys from other dynasties could come and learn there. And he could have spent the rest of his life being a Shiva, yeshiva. And and we're ta- obviously you can tell what I'm talking about. The the our hero is somebody that all day long is this torah. So you know that's fine with him. The problem is that 1914, four years later, after it started, World War One hit. Now, And World War I hit central Poland big time. Now, most people are not aware of the catastrophic nature of World War I to Jewry period and, and Eastern European Jewry in particular. And that's because World War II was so much worse. Since in World War II, Hitler killed everybody in the mass murders. So World War I doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Like we say, Tsarists, Akronists, Meshachists, and Reshonists. But it's not true I think I've, i I must have mentioned it in the, some podcast or another i did a uh i did a uh a series on this one it's a lecture series on my youtube channel. you know I don't know if it's up there or not it could very well be uh and uh on orthodox Jewry in in the first world war, which is a fascinating subject in and of itself and um like I say most people are not aware of it. they've heard of the second world war but we don't usually know too much about the First World War. You know, you've heard the term um, 6 million Jews were killed by Hitler. It's actually not true. It's more like 5 million or 5.2, depending how you play with the numbers. I don't want to go into this in great detail. I could sometime, but I don't feel like doing it now. It's not 6 million. But if you add up World War One plus World War Two, you get to 6 million. Uh, because in World War I, for the first time... Jews were subject to the draft ever since the 1800s, including Hasinim. And so they were uh, drafted by millions into the Russian army, the Austrian army, the German army, and so forth. Listen to this. A quarter of a million Jews were killed fighting in World War I. That's an unbelievable number. A quarter of a million Jews were killed fighting in stupid World War I for the Tsar of Russia, for the Emperor of Austria, for the Emperor of Germany, and so forth. In addition to that, Another quarter of a million civilian Jews died from malnutrition, from the Magaphis that swept through uh, Eastern Europe as a result of the uh, occupation by the armies and various other things. I don't know, one day, if uh, I'll tell my son, maybe I'll put it up, on. You, you, can, you can see the series if you're interested in it, if this subject interests you. So that's a half a million I just said. A quarter of a million and a quarter of a million. These are numbers that never existed in Kali since the time of Bar Kokhbors, whatever. You understand? This way outnumbers Komelnitsky. I want you to understand the significance of what I'm saying over here. Because our hero lives right through that and was hit over the head by a two-by-four, historically speaking, like all the other Jews in Eastern Europe were, uh, as a result of this unforeseen catastrophe. And I repeat, I'm talking about World War I. I'm not talking about World War II. And in World War I, there was no Hitler. And in World War I, the German army was actually good to the Jews. Uh, and in World War I... You know there wasn't a, a plan to go and uh, you know round up all the Jews. In spite of everything I just said, World War I was a catastrophe for Chalysro. And listen to this. Um, uh, I just said half a million Jews were killed. I don't care if it's done without a specific uh, you know agenda to get the Jews. We never lost those kind of numbers. Half a million is gigantic. And, uh, on the other hand, it is balanced, and here you have Hashgach by a strange fact that between 1830 and 1930s, uh, you, you, you're going to fly off the seat when I tell you this now, between the 1830s and the 1930s, the Jewish population in the world quintupled. <laughs> These are facts that are out there, not so, just, not, well, nobody, average guy. You hear what I said? The physical numbers of Jews in the world, and mainly in Europe, mainly in Eastern Europe, increased by a factor of five, from about three million, three point something million to like sixteen million, something like that. There never was, in our history that we know of, that kind of baby boom, unless you go back to B'nai Yisrael, they go like Rashlakish that everybody had sixty babies at a time, you know, in the Mandus over there. But you see what I am saying. So, it's just interesting, by the way, isn't it? Just before the Holocaust, World War 1 and World War 2, the oh, what shall I say, fattened the calf? <laughs> he had a whole bunch of new Jews in the world so they could be able to take that blow, even though it's a terrible thing that happened, obviously. So, um, in addition to the half a million I just described, another 100,000 or more were killed right after the First World War, primarily in Ukraine, in the pogroms and civil wars, that followed the end of the First World War. Uh, it's just uh, bad stuff. So I just told you 600,000 Jews were killed between 1914 and let's say 1921 or 22. 600,000, that's uh You add that to 5.2, 5.3 million from Hitler, you end up with 6 million. You see what I'm saying? Uh, when you get to the 6 million, it's a very complicated calculation there. It's It's much better if you want to be accurate to talk of 5 million. Or 5 million plus a little bit. Uh, But like I say, I don't want to get too much into that. You know, like for example, the count 6 million, the 300,000 Soviet soldiers, Jewish, who died fighting Hitler in World War II. I get it, but that's not a victim of the Holocaust. That was soldiers fighting in the Russian army, under Stalin's army. So you start playing these kind of games. I'm simply leaving this discussion by saying there was a bad time to live, Okay. And so for our hero, and Hasidim in general, and from Jews in general, when the First World War broke out, the Russians invaded, the Germans counter-invaded, the Austrians invaded, it was a Chorben Shankamo, even though they weren't going after the Jews per se, but um, destruction is destruction, bombing is bombing, shooting is shooting, and having mass armies all over the place is terrible for your daughters and whatever. And it happened. So all the Hasidic yeshivas uh, uh, were busted. Just like all the literature yeshivas. But in Poland specifically, um, any big Hasidic group was busted. And all the Rebbe's had to run away here, there, and the other. I don't think any Rebbe ended up in the course of World War One remaining in his town, because he would have been killed. So the Galicianos ran away to, to Vienna and to Budapest. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And the Russian ones ran to Minsk and Kremenchuk, and that, that kind of thing. And it was just terrible. And so as far as Hasidism is concerned... So Sochachev... I believe never returned to Sakhachov If I remember correctly, the town was destroyed in the fighting, and the Sachaev Reb and the Rebbe, who did he die in for World War One? I? I think so. Uh, the is the they never recovered in the town of Sakhachev, They relocated elsewhere. And so the reason I'm telling you all this is, he don't have no yeshiva anymore. <laughs> okay, in World War One, the whole yeshiva scatters in a hundred directions because, um, you know. Life has gone that way. Uh, So all your frameworks are destroyed. Shoals were destroyed. Mick were destroyed. The cemeteries were destroyed. It was uh, an unbelievable horror, As before Hitler. So as a result, um, our hero, like many people, had to flee to big cities. Because it was relatively safer, although it wasn't safe there either. And he ended up in Warsaw, right? Uh, Waiting out the war over there. And... After the war, so now you have a new problem. You're trying to rebuild from the Corbin. Um Like happened after World War II. Rebuild from the Corbin. No, after World War II, things are much better. What do I mean? Where did Jewry, from Jewry, rebuild after World War II? America and Israel, mostly. right? These are two friendly environments, relatively free of anti-Semitism. Uh, democratic countries. That's a fact. Now, let's contrast that. Where did Jewry have to rebuild after World War I? Eastern Europe. It was a new nation of Poland, new Republic of Poland, which was very anti-Semitic. It's the Soviet Union, which will kill any from Jew, certainly any yeshiva. Uh, the economy, again, is very different. In, in, after the Holocaust, America and Israel, particularly America, had a good economy, a, bo- a boom economy. Uh, richest country in the world. After World War I, countries like uh, you know, uh, Poland, Lithuania, Romania, and all that, poor, very hard conditions. And, I'll say even more than that, um, the experience of World War I made a ton of people unfrom, because they lost their institutions that kept them grounded within Yiddish culture especially within Hasidus. Uh, you don't go to a rebbe in 1914 to 1918 because he's he went somewhere else. He's running for his life. Uh, so you don't do it. Your yuntav is different. Your shabbos is different. There's no yeshivas. Uh, often there's no synagogues. Often there's not a chance to uh, you know have regular Jewish life. Look how everybody's going nuts in the corona time now because they miss a davening here and uh, Israel. My son's now in Israel in yeshiva and he got the covid along with the other guys in his capsule. You know and in what he called, um, Nevei Yaakov. And, uh, you know, that's what's going on. And that's mild. That's a small pot compared to what they had over there in the, the terrible times of World War One. So a ton of Hasidic youth went off the Derek. And I would say that the Hasidus was cut in half. From 40% of Polish Jewry went to 20. Um, by the time you get to 1920, so after the First World War. So our hero is living through times in which He's saying, What the heck just happened over here? I lived in a Ghanaian up to World War One. You had the Sakashov, you had the Yeshiva, you had the Rebbe, you had people come for for, for Yontev, the whole Hasidic lifestyle. Um, you know, obviously living under the Tsar Russia wasn't perfect. But still, as as Hutzakht, you know, and the old Yiddishkeit was really pulsating. And now it's all gone. And we have to rebuild and we have to rebuild under much the more difficult circumstances because uh, the kids have been detached from Yiddishkeit in an intense way for a long time. Uh, they've been surrounded by Goyim because the armies occupied the place all over the place. Armies are usually very uh, uh Many of the girls end up in prostitution. Thing. People don't know, it was a, a bad news for Eastern European Jewry. I mean, the Frumas families. Uh, and also, you have now new ideas like communism, socialism, Zionism, Uh, which made sense in those days to people. And so what are you going to say? Just continue to be a Choset? Like, you know, what? why? And anyway, what's the plan? We're surrounded by anti-Semitism in Poland. What's the future? Bishlam, if you're a communist, you have a vision of future, or a socialist, or a Zionist. If you're just a Choset, what's your vision of future? There's no vision of future. You have a vision of the past. I don't want the past. I don't don't want to just repeat the past. That's how people talked. You see? It was in this environment that our hero... Um, became a Robin Khashoglov, that's how he got his famous name, uh, and was there for 10, eh, 15 years, something like that, in 1920s. This is a fascinating era in history, which I say the historians are just starting to sink their teeth into. And um, that is when the Hasidim tried to react to the uh, crisis that I just described, which was very clear and the hemorrhaging by creative new um, strategies. And uh, among the creative new strategies, I'm not going to be able to do justice to this in today's talk, but still, I'll, I'll at least touch on it. And you see the cultural lovers living lived in very dramatic times. Uh, one of the, I would say, the main uh, difference or chiddish will be in chinuch. And um, First of all, for girls, that's when you had the Beis Yaakov. That's number one. So you know what a revolution that was. And number two, uh, for boys, <laughs> to set up yeshivas. And I say yeshivas in the institutional sense, like the Litvaks. Uh, this is a relatively new phenomenon. Even the Hasidim prior to the First World War in some places has started to see that the old system. Of the Hasinim, which was generally you learn in the base Medrash by yourself. I've spoken about this many times, and I imagine at least some of you remember what I said. Uh, in the old school, shall we say, um, in the 1800s and before that, the average person didn't go to a place called yeshiva. If you were interested in learning, you had for it whatsoever. You probably lived in your own little town. You went to a local base Medrash, whichever one you wanted to. There's nobody, no to, to to watch you and snitch on you. And you learned as much as you wanted to. You want to learn an hour a day? Give them to eight. You want to learn 10 hours a day? Give them to eight. You want to learn 20 hours a day? You can do that too. You want to learn uh, six hours a day? Whatever you want. And who you learn with? Whoever you get. You get a chavusa, you don't get a chavusa. You get a chavusa who's a jerk. You get a chavusa who's a genius. It's how it was. Are there any shirum? Maybe, yeah. Maybe, no. You know? <laughs> if there's somebody in town who knows how to give a shir and he's, uh, he's good enough to attract the locals to listen to a shir, you got a shir. If not, you, don't. <laughs> you see. And even though it's a hot-plop system, it kind of worked for many years. Many Gadol Yisrael came up through this school. They didn't go to Yeshiva like you have today. Imamish came up through this school, including many great Hasidic Geonim. Ge- you hear what I said? Not Hasidic Reb, it's Geonim. Came up through that way. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're self-motivated, as the expression is today, it works fine. As a matter of fact, it's more LeShema. The Yeshiva was looked at as an institution that breeds elitism, and it's because of the uh, authority structure, you have to have a Rashiv and a Mashkir and a snitch system, and they watch what you do. You know, it's it, all these things that go along with that. There's a plus minus to everything, and the Hasidim traditionally didn't like that. But already in the late 1800s, this is a whole subject. There's some recent articles on this. Uh, starting in the late 1800s, you start to see in Poland that some of the rebbes. Not all. You know, they say, you know, we got to set up a yeshiva uh, like, they, like the, like the Misnagdim have. Of course, with a Hasidic twist. Um, in this place in Poland, in that place in Poland. But they were all destroyed in the First World War. All of them. And so when the war was over, they all had to start from scratch. And yeshiva is an expensive proposition. You see, when you learn in a basement system, like I said before, there's no overhead. You see? The boy I'm talking about, who chooses to learn nine hours a day chooses to. There's a local-based menace. At the age of 12 or 14, if that's what he wishes to do. What's the overhead? There is none. He goes home for lunch if if he has a home, and if there is a lunch. If there isn't, there isn't, you know. uh, He sleeps at home. He lives a block away, two blocks away. That's how life was lived in the old days. There's no overhead. Once you have a you got a building, you got to pay salaries, you have a budget. You understand what I'm saying? So this was a formidable problem. In spite of all that, there was a... uh, a, what shall I say a birth, an outburst of new yeshivas in Poland in the 1920s and 30s. Like I say, this is a subject that's just starting to be um, published particularly in English. In Hebrew you have studies on this but the firm stuff is like full of misinformation. Uh, but uh, some serious studies are, are, are coming out now on this and the the, the, the Rebbe's were able to uh, not all chose to do this but many did they set up a, the equivalent of what we would call Shiva Katana Shiva Gadolas. and it's a very interesting subject and some of them set up networks of yeshivas uh, the Kesertari and you know, the Radomsker comes to mind the Babov comes to mind uh Lubavitch started they were like late on this because the Rebbe came there in the 30s uh the Gare of course, had their uh, uh, network. Alexander had their network. You know, they, all the Hasidic groups. And uh, it's this very interesting that I would almost say spontaneously, this was a response to modernity. We've lost who we've lost. Let's hold on to who we have now. And maybe once we are Machazik and we have Hasidish boys in the Yeshivish environment, and you combine, if I can use the term the best of the Hasidish with the best of the Yeshivish, um, if you have like that, then we'll produce a, 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 a intense and amazing generation, and then maybe they re- maybe they re- can reconquer in the next generation the lost souls. Maybe we'll start a big team movement or something like that. That was a hope. And that was the world in which our hero grew up. Now, they don't learn Litvish's style. They learn in the Hasidic style and the Galicianer style and the Polish style. Uh, but it's very harifas, you understand, uh, in, in its own way. And... Uh, uh, it's it's what it is, and they also learned chassidus in yeshiva. some did, some didn't. Each place had its own own way of operating. This is an interesting point. And the best guys were people who knew hoshas. I mean, literally knew hoshas, right? New hoshulchanar. <laughs> so from his little town in Kozheglov, he set up a small yeshiva. I um, don't know how he raised the money, and he was considered, um, you know, as we say, a charismatic teacher. And um, he attracted boys, in other words. Uh, but not a whole lot. You get what I'm saying? Uh, because it's a small town that didn't have a lot of money. It's as simple as that. So uh, he spends uh, the 20s and the early 30s in this role. So basically, he rebounded. He started out as a Rav in a small little place. Nothing. He um, And all of his life, he was a Rav. He liked the Rav Bonas. And he liked Paskin Shalas. He's a shalos and Shiva's guy. That's what he is. Uh, in addition to that, he was a Rosh shiva. He liked teaching Talmidim. And he liked the talking, learning, the interplay, the caution, the terrors, and all that sort of thing. So he clearly had this charismatic uh, personality to make himself a charismatic teacher. Uh, the town he was in is a small place, Kajaklov. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, he can afford to have a small number of students. I don't think they had a large number of students at all. But nevertheless... It doesn't matter, um, because he he, he, he he made a name for himself, okay? And finally, his reputation spread as a guide you can write chubas to. You know, words, a real posseck, and if you're ever familiar with his chubas, he tries to help you. <laughs> you get it? That's a posseck. Uh, notice let's put it this way. Let's strip it down to its basics. I need a Hector man, <laughs> okay? Um, I'm looking for a Hector. Now... From guys say like this if there is no head, there isn't. Okay, we all agree with that. That's the difference between from and not from. If there's no head, there isn't. Okay, but if there is, I need it. And uh, he, And by the way, as a rav, you know, he gives us a uh, uh, chasidish, shal um, shuddas Torah, you know, that whole way of, of, of practicing the rabbanas, and everything is super Polish. And, it's, and he lives there. Kozhglov is also in the heartland of Poland, in the belly button of Poland. Okay? Now, um, he ends up moving to a couple other places, uh, Sosnovitz, whatever, which actually was the headquarters, if I remember correctly, for one of the Hasidic networks. Maybe it was the Sokotchev one, probably. Let me explain. I told you before, it's just very interesting to study what might have happened if Hitler had not come along. Uh, Poland was uh, destroyed in World War One and started to rebuild in World War, uh, afterwards, in the 20s and 30s. Uh, a lot of kids went off to derek, but a lot did not. And there was a, a missionary movement, Jewish missionary movement spirit, like we have in our time for the Kiruv movement. Uh, but not Kiruv in the same way you have in America. You go to people in Manish not from, but you have people who are about to become not from want to rescue them. And so they set up these networks of yeshivas. And I would say... By the time Hitler came along, if you talk about the Republic of Poland, in my understanding, I think you had uh, close to 20,000 boys. Um, something like that. 15-20,000 boys learning in some kind of sieve environment or another in, in the Republic of Poland, which is a lot. Okay? Now, it's a population of 3.3 3 million Jews, so it's not a lot relative to that. If it's 3.3 3 million Jews, how many teenagers are their yeshiva age. It's a small number. But nevertheless, altogether, there's not a tiny number. And uh, and the heart of it was our hero. Uh, now, what a lot of these things did was they had these networks of smaller yeshivas, which were feeders to a central yeshiva that was meant for the Eloys. Get it? Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. The Litvaks did this also in the Vardik. was went all over Poland, Hasidic parts and non-Hasidic parts, and they set up base yosef schools and uh that's where the stipler comes from you know uh they and and you set, wherever you go you set up a a, a little uh a yeshiva and hopefully you try to grow it and your best guys are siphoned off to the headquarters uh where the, the senior yeshiva is so uh robert Kanyevsky's father knows the stipler he was from a local yeshiva and then he was siphoned off to uh to be and where he became a Russian Yeshiva there, because he's one of the best guys from the local branches. And so I think the Kajlover ended up going to uh, one of those towns like Sosnovitz or whatever for it to, to be, to preside over a Yeshiva of the more Iluisha types. So basically, you have someone who is at the spitz of the Polish Yeshiva world of the Hasidic variety, okay? Now, uh, at the same time, he's a Rav, and... Uh, by that I mean he's into halacha and I'll say, tell you again people from everywhere Bachrim Chassidim uh, non-Chassidim Rodim Shalos of all different types and um, like I said before it's clear to me you know if, it's, if there's there's a certain way of poskening it's going to sound funny I don't mean to be funny there's a certain way of poskening you can put together Um, Heterum if you know what you're doing and you have a gigantic uh, uh, because that people wouldn't have imagined um, I think he's that type Um, obviously not always but uh, it's clear I'll I'll get to that in a a bit now this all changed in 1934 uh, with the uh, with when the mayor Shapiro died in 33 and they needed somebody for the libeling cheaper the cockney Lublin. now I'll tell you the truth Uh, the subject of what actually happened in the Kachmei Lublin Yeshiva is not 100% clear to me because a lot of what I read is not true. And there's a lot of hagiography involved in there, which is totally understandable, especially if he was killed, Ramea Shapiro and all the rest of it. But um, it's pretty clear that Ramea Shapiro had in mind, as part of the trend that I just described, to make like a super yeshiva of some sort or another, and it should be um, what should I say it's in Lublin in central Poland it should be able like like the, like the Litvish that we're trying to do in Lithuania to present a model of Man Malki Rabonan. so the yeshiva should have the whole outward uh, shine of a university of a high level institution of a chashua place and that of course requires a lot of money to put together and as everybody knows Mary Shabir was a master fundraiser and he did do it didn't he but what exactly he had in mind, he wasn't sure himself. That's that's how I understand it. <coughs> Hi. You know, I got interrupted here. It's never happened to me before by uh, a whole bunch of things that a class had to give and I see him. I had to go to. It's uh, <laughs> unusual. I'm going to try to pick up where I left off before. I think he was talking about Romeo Shapiro. You know, I was trying to explain, at least I think I was, that in the interwar period, you know, between World War I and World War II... The Hasidic, a lot of Yiddishka was in crisis. A lot of people going off to Derch. And one of the ways they figured was, let's try the Lithuanian thing of a, of a formal yeshiva. Okay. Now, uh, usually, as they said, whole networks were set up. And usually under the auspices of a particular Hasidic dynasty. <clears throat> I think as many people know, Ramir Shapiro said he wanted to do something different. And he wasn't 100% sure <laughs> what exactly he wanted to do. I'll tell you what I mean by it. This will surprise you. Uh, in 1923, <clears throat> you know, Ramesh Peri died young he was 45, 46. I think many of you know that. So when he was really young, in his 30s, uh, I think at the Agurda Convention in Vienna, I believe, which is where you have that uh, video that everybody's seen online with the Kovac So that's where he came up. He said, what we need is a dafiomi and we need a... A yeshiva's Chachmi Lublin. He didn't call Chachmi Lublin, he didn't know exactly where it would be, but a super yeshiva. And he had in mind a Velasian for Poland with the necessary changes, mutatis mutandis, as they say. Not identical to Velasian, but given the conditions of Poland uh, and the different civilization there, now this would be Hasidic, it'll be this, it'll be you know, not exactly like in Lithuania, but that general idea of super yeshiva. And, um, he couldn't get any money for it, and he went crazy raising money, and he worked himself to death probably, but he died from cancer anyway, so it didn't matter, he's going to die anyway, but uh, he worked very hard to raise the money, he never did raise the money he needs, I don't think people know this, but eventually he kind of did, he came to America in 1927, and uh, his mom drove himself crazy, and then he built a very fancy building in Lublin, okay? Uh, it was uh, six stories and 100 rooms, over 100 rooms. And the idea was, it should be, let's put it this way, it should knock Harvard out of the park. He took He said, this would be better than a university. Okay with me. Now, all this is great, and the idea generally was, he thought that somehow or other, he didn't have an exact plan, he didn't because it was brand new territory, that it'll be a super yeshiva, of course. Uh, how exactly so? what the technique of learning is, how precisely do you make a Hasidic Valashan? You get my point? You know, how exactly does that work out? He didn't have clear in his mind. He knew he wanted to do it. And um, and I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's a long and separate story. Meshavir is a very interesting guy, you know. Uh, and he himself um, didn't have a particular Derech of learning. You have to know who he was. Mershava was not a Polish. He was born in Bukovina, which is a province over in between Poland and Hungary, near Chernowitz. Uh, that's a whole type of Yiddishkeit by itself. And, uh, you know, the and the when he escaped from Russia in the 1800s, I probably never did that story. I have a, 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 a video about that. So he ran away from the Tsarist Russia in the middle of the night, and, you know, he ended up in Bukovina, in Sadagere, as they call it, which is near the big city of Czernowice. he's I know, I know I'm know. i using geography geogra- terms, you don't know what I'm talking about. Just take it from me, he wasn't in Poland. And uh, the, she was there. Hermia uh, Shapir was indeed a Sadi of Charkov Chorko- is from the Rijner dynasty. And he was he born to a millionaire family and he married a millionaire girl. He was born rich and he, and he uh, married rich. So Hermia Shapir himself was raised in the lap of luxury, so to speak, and never had to go and be- beg and borrow for money. It was not in his character. And, uh, uh, and he was a bar hockey, of course. He turned in a great going, as we know. And a super talented speaker and this and that and the other. And a man of great vision. And he knew when he wanted to make the yeshiva. He didn't know exactly what the, what the tzura is going to be. Now, I'm actually telling you something very interesting. <laughs> you know? When you make a yeshiva, like, what exactly is it? Now, if you're like in Baltimore, Rabbi Rudim, he said, I want to be like Sobotka, you know, something like that. Or a will set up something I want to be like in Tels. Now, if you already have a tzura and you're just trying to copy and adapted to local conditions. But here he was trying something that didn't exist within memory, which is, or ever, you know, a big fancy yeshiva. Obviously, he's only going to want the best guys. So that's one way of making an elite yeshiva, make it hard to get into, you know, with the bechinas and all that. And uh, But then what exactly should it look like? What exactly should the yeshiva be? And he himself was a genius, and so... Finally, he put it all together, and, and they, they built the yeshiva. It started in 1930 in the middle of the Depression. And uh, they had guys, of course, and his charisma and so forth, and people wanted to get in. But then what? He didn't really know how to get a hot hole together. It's it's interesting. You know, in other words, who should be the rosh yeshivas? And I can tell you right now, he wanted and he needed badly. Um, what shall I say? people who were outstanding maggot not somebody to be a Rosh Hashiva. Do you get what I'm saying? I think you know, for example, most of the listeners, I imagine, that, let's see, um, in and the Russia, the Chaim was the Rosh shiva, but, uh, the Granat, you know, no he, he, he was the star maggot shear, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Shemesh Kap was the star maggot shear in tels Uh, when I was in there, he throw was Rabbi Kalevsky. You understand? The person was especially here's a good example. The Panovich of was Ada Panovich, but he who who was the star here, you know, to really get the guys in and and, and provide the derich, you know, Rabbi Shmuel uh, Rosovsky, right? And Dov Pavarsky. That kind of thing I'm talking about. So Ramey Shapiro had no experience in each but he never went to Shiva in his life. He came, as I say, from a rich background. He learned by himself, you know, in the old fashioned way that I was talking about. In him everything came together. And Baruch Hashem, he succeeded, you know what I mean? In being rich and being a, a, a claw leader and a gon and a big chassid. So in other words, it all worked for him. That doesn't mean that's a, a direct to show somebody else. And like I said, what's shot with him and learning? Like all these guys I'm talking about, if they didn't have a yeshiva background, they didn't work out a particular mahalach, shitatit, it's eclectic. All these Gadolim and big people I'm talking about, especially the ones that learned in the base system, it's eclectic. They picked up a little this, They picked up a little this. Maybe somebody along the way developed his own little knesh. Um, this is how it went. Uh, and as opposed to somebody's learning it, for example, today in Brisk. You understand? Or years, years ago, they used to say somebody's learning in Tel. I mean, there's a Derech Halimut over there. You know, see? Wasn't well, like that. And he wanted to create a super yeshiva. But how exactly are you going to do it? No, this what well would be the Derech Halimut. He didn't know. And it's very famous that he looked and tried to find the star Shears. And I don't know why, but it never worked. And when the yeshiva started, you know, he was the, the, he, he got elected, Robin Lubin, and he made the yeshiva there. And he himself gave the yeshiva, but he was also Rav and a call to where You know, he had time for all that, even though he very much wanted. And he put as much time as, as he could, but he wanted to star magachir. Now, he worked his head off, and he died young. You know, in the third year of the yeshiva, something like that. This is all, excuse me, very famous. He died tragically, and uh, he couldn't find what he was looking for. It's 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 funny to me, you know. And there are stories. I don't know if the stories are true because there's so much baloney out there. Uh, I'll give me an example of a wonderful piece of baloney, which will work very well for the Uh well, I, I'm growing up in Baltimore. I always heard we used to have a person here who died in 1958, before my time. Uh, Rabbi right, Forschlager. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't heard of him. He's a Nechbal. He's a Gadol Hador, but nobody ever heard of him, you Understand? unless you did. And he was actually a buddy of our hero, because they're both born in the same year, and they both ended up at the same time by the Sakhachar, by the Avni Nazar. I don't know much about their personal relation, but they had to be buddies. And they were there to start pupils at the end of the Avni Nazar period. And uh, But, you know, you can compare and contrast and that's very useful in history. Uh, when you have biographies, particularly if you compare and contrast personalities, it's uh, revealing. You understand? It's revealing. And, uh, you know, Plutarch does that with the lives of the uh, the classic historian from the ancient times who wrote about the lives of the famous Greeks and Romans. He has a biography of a Greek and then of a famous Roman, then he does compare and contrast. So you can do that in, 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 in Jewish stuff also, and Torah stuff also. Here's two guys who were from uh, belly button Poland. And they both ended up by Davni Nezer. And, and they both were big Makaurav to him. And they're both super geniuses. But one had a personality, clear, clearly, for a klal tour. He was extrovert. I'm talking about our hero. Uh, he wanted to be a rogue. He served in the Rambanes. He's a Paisic. He was a, a Rosh Hashiva, a Yeshiva that he put together himself. You know, he handles with the boys. That's the nature. The other one, Ralph Forschläger, who may have been bigger than him in learning. Uh, you don't know who I'm talking about. He was a big person. I'm seeing a big, big, big person. Uh, you know, you go look it up. They wrote a biography of him a couple of years ago. Uh, a nephew of his, whatever. A friend of mine. He's the greatest girl you've ever heard of. He didn't want to be a Rov. He didn't want to be a Rosh Sheba. You know, he ended up in Baltimore. He just sat and learned. You know, he didn't want to start anything. Uh, he was at Sadek and so forth. But he's not one to build a yeshiva, to give Sheworm every day. In that kind of way and they said i used to hear that when the mayor shapiro died this is the story in baltimore i grew up with so mayor shapiro died so they were looking for a replacement and they offered it to him but his family said no however i looked at the biography that was recently published by his nephew and friend of Fuchsleger, and they say instead if i understand this right that before the yeshiva started when mayor Shabir came to America in 1927, he came here once to raise money for the yeshiva. He didn't do that great of a job financially. He came back with $50,000, which was money in those days, but not what he planned. He planned to come back with half a million, you know. Um, and so when he visited Baltimore, he already saw who, a foreshulker, says, you come back with me, and um, in Poland, before you were poor, your family was starving, which is why you came with your family to Baltimore. They had seven children, four of whom died from starvation. In World War One, you know, times where I tell you people don't realize how bad World War One was. But right, Forshleger's family was already Americanized, and they said, "Pop, people <laughs> emigrate from Poland to America. Nobody emigrates from America to Poland," and it didn't happen. Um, so that could could be. You keep this in mind because of our story. Now, um, it, it, what it says in the biography is that he said, "Take my friend to Glover, which did not happen, but. Uh, it's it's interesting the way the stories are spun. The point I'm getting at is that the yeshiva Chachmi Lubin had a tremendous chitzonius, but it wasn't. It was a lack of clarity in the panemius, and by that I mean in, in the exact mahalach the yeshiva should be. They knew it should be high level learning, but what exact style it should be? And you know, it's like rough cooked in some degree. That Rav uh, uh, Meshivir talked in huge terms. uh you know, brilliant, long terms, which are not easy to make happen. He said, I want the Amkus of Lita, the Harifas of Poland, he means belly button Poland, and the Bikiyas of Galicia. Again, the Amkus of Lita, the Harifas of Poland, and the Bikiyas of Galicia. That's a tall order. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't know if that's going to happen. And who's the one that's going to do it? And he never the time. And he himself, like I say, never learned by the literacy, never learned by the Galician he wasn't that type. He was his own. His own Mizug, as you could say. And, you know, if you're a Mizug, it's, you can't really hand that over as a Shita to Talmudim. Think about what I'm saying. <laughs> if you're the result of your personal lifetime experience and not of a Maslul, it's not so easy to give over. So, those of you who understand Yeshiva is what I'm talking about. Maybe those who are listening that don't may be a little bit confused what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm mentioning this for a reason. So when he made the yeshiva, he didn't have a staff, Mayor Shapiro. It was a big problem. And the person he brought along, Rav Shimon Engel, was weird, because Rav Shimon Engel was a tremendous gun and all the rest of it, but he was a big m'kubble, and he hated the, he hated the Chachmid Lubbine yeshiva. He said that it's, the yeshivas are an example of the gaiva that the Baal Shanta was opposed to, and it's going to breed elitism and it's uh, totally negative, and uh, Meir Shabir means well, but the whole place is a disaster. Well, then why do you pick him? And why do you accept? And he started by giving shurim, but then most of the time the shurim he did kabbalah. <laughs> and you know how that works. Half the class were turned on, half the class was turned off. Meir Shabir threw up his hands. He said, oh, you won't be the Maggid Instead, you'll be the um, mashkiach. Uh, so what was his mashkiach uh, shmuzin, all in kabbalah? And uh, you know, the early Hasidus and the sheep was no good. It was a, a crazy story, and um, he was already thinking of firing. But then he died, Ramey Shapiro. And when the Sheep so notice noticed that she went off to a brilliant start. They got the best guys, you know, with those famous bechins. The you end know, of hundred blot or whatever, and uh, everything's you know theoretically should be Givaldic, But he, it, it contrary to what you think, he didn't have it set up the way he wanted. Which is he wanted to have a Rozovsky? He wanted to have a granat. You, you get what I'm saying? He wanted to have like a, like a, I don't know, you know, a, a, a fantastic magashir, the way Reb was in Volozhin, you know, that, that that kind of thing. Uh, and he wanted one or two of them actually. It didn't quite happen. And if you get the smartest guys together, you need somebody like that, who can be a role model for them in, in, in Machshava, and how to think in Hezber and Sfar Yeshara. It could be a Pele derech, it could be a Gadsiana Shederech, it could be a Litvish Shederech, but it's got to be a Derech, and then you inspire the Talmudim to focus their kochus on that, you know, you set an ideal, as it were. So, uh, it didn't happen, and, um, by the way, the Chachmielu Mishib was funny. You went there for four years, you got smich already, you understand? And if you got two more years, you got heterof, you, you can go out and be a rabbi. So, you know, this Shimon Engel didn't like they say become a a a factory for rabbis, like a university. It was weird. When Mayor Shapiro died kind of suddenly. See, she was all confused. Who takes over? This Reb Shimon Engel, who didn't get along with the and whose Derech Becholal and Yiddishkeit was very very different. that Mayor Shapiro, he took over and he was there for seven eight months, and he made it a terrible thing because. He was talking about the super chassidahs, super kabbalah. I mean, really. And the learning went down. Half the yeshiva was turned on, and they got into the kabbalistic stuff. The other half was totally turned off. Guys weren't learning anymore, leaving around, wandering around, you know, so forth. And Ramein Shapiro didn't have any children. So when he died, the place was like orphaned in the sense of who's in charge. And this Roshiman guy, he was not what the Hanhola had in mind. What Hanhola? Immediately, when the yeshiva lost its, its leader, when he died young, so uh, those who were important people in Polish jewelry, they said, we have to save the yeshiva, you know. It, it's a shame what happened to Rabbi Shabir, but we have a building, we have a, 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 a place. Uh, it's beautifully located. we got to raise money, and we have Talmudim. We have Talmudim we want to stream in and learn here. We can make this into Reb Shabir wanted, but we got to happen, and so some biggest Hasidic rabbonim in Poland came together and they became the Shultana Ruchani, like we would say today, the Vada you know, for the yeshiva. And you know, the first thing they did was fire this other guy. It was there, it was Shimon Engel, which, as I say, half the guys in yeshiva went along. The other half of the guys in the yeshiva protested. And they rioted. And they had to call the cops. There was a guy who was told to leave, and he wouldn't leave. They had to call the police in there. So it was a balagan and a half in a yeshiva Kachman Leblin. Okay? The reason I'm telling you that is, so who would like to take over in that? It's walking on eggs. And they tried, the Hanhola tried to bring in somebody who they thought would be a Tsugipast, Rosh Hashiva, and Magad Shira to take the place for Mayor Shapiro and make it a Yeshiva Yeshiva. You know, get one or two big Magad Shirs and, you know, have, have it go, uh, you know, in, uh, go in, in the right derech. Well, um, they brought in one guy and it didn't work because the talmidim said he's he's a big Tom Chochem, but he, he's not a good magishir, He doesn't have a good der Hasbara. You understand what that means? Uh, you have to know how to say it over. They brought in an, I'm not going to say names. They brought in another person and he had a you know he had a good Hasbara, but notice he was a, what we would call today a nerdy type guy. He didn't have the personality that you need. To be a chevraman of the right sort to inspire the guys. I'm talking about in learning. And and they brought it like a third one. You see what I'm saying? So anybody who who applied for the job or was willing to take the job ran into the problem of how do you get yourself accepted in this environment when everybody says like this, there will never be another Amir Shapiro, which is true. And they never should have gotten rid of Shimon or or they should have or whatever. And you get involved in yeshiva politics. Uh, You know what I'm saying? So It was crazy. This is where our hero comes in. After they tried several candidates, and it didn't work out, finally turned to R.C. Frumer, who I think was in Sosnovitz, as I said before, as we call him the Kajoglover, and they say like this, listen, we heard about you. First of all, you're Hasidish. Second of all, you're a Agon. Third of all, you have long experience with guys. You've been a, you've been a Rosh Hashiva, you know, in Kajoglov, and before the war, in that other place, in Sakhachev. And in other towns, in other words, you're as we would say today, you're an experienced mechanech of the highest order. By that I mean not a mechanech of a fifth grade. You're mechanech of Bismedrish, You know you know how to give a shear. It's a Avni Nader type shear. It's Polish, very kharifis It's not the literature style, but big deal. It's very uh, it's the Polish style, and you're clearly a gone, Everybody said that, and you have the right personality. This is where it's interesting to me. If you read his sefer, which I'll talk about in a second, if I remember, the you see in the beginning. This is very famous, actually. Those who know about it, that he says, "I learned from our rabbis. The thing in life is simcha," which means. This is my interpretation. I think I, I have this right. I can only tell you what I think whenever I do a podcast. He learning has to be fun? See what I said it has to be fun. It's not something you do because it's the midst of Talmud Torah. It's not something you do because the Rebbe will give Nachas Ruach and all that kind of stuff. It's got to be fun. Now, you could disagree with me. And this was an issue, an interesting issue in Torah Mach But his Rebbe said the same thing. I'm sure many of you listening here will be aware, if not everybody, of his Rebbe Dasachat the, the I'm talking about the Egli Tal. What's the famous intro to, I think everybody knows this. What's the intro, famous intro to the Egli Tal? It's like this. The Zohar is like this. Is learning supposed to be fun, or does that take away from Torah Lishma? Did you ever hear that? I'm sure you've come across that, right? What if you like learning? Is it, well, let's say it's fun. Is that take away from Torah Lishma, or do you have to say like this? I'm not doing it for fun. If I get any personal hano out of it, it's Magareya from the Lishma. And the Egli Tal, the is like this wrong. The Torah should be fun. That is Torah Lishma. When you get into it to the degree that is, you, you, you like doing it, and it's fun, and this gives you the simcha, and, you know, this is great. And so, you know, a person says, honestly, without any baloney, you know, I had a better time learning today than you had when you went to the party, when you, than you had when you went to vacation vacation. You enjoyed the vacation, no problem with that. I have no time is on you, right? Great, you went to a luxury hotel, no problem. I had more fun here learning. Now, not everybody's built that way, let's be honest. Raise your hand if you're like that. Not everybody talks like that, okay? Although I suspect people who give Shiorim, uh, these Dafyomi guys, like our sponsor, and I imagine the reason they do is fun, okay? And the Avni Nazar, the says, that's the highest Madrid. that is the Torah And so this is how our hero was raised, the Kushaglover. And he more or less says that, he said, this I got from Rebim. So the reason I'm saying it is, when they brought him to the to the to the, to the he's a Khaverman, he's got a good personality. I can just imagine I wasn't there obviously, but the way he writes, and the way he talks, and the way people remember him, you know, a sheer by him was fun. What do you hold? Anybody got a kasha? Let me hear what this guy has to say. No, you know that you know, a lot of banter back and forth in the kharifas, in the pilpul. You get it? So it's not a sheer by him, I'm sure was not a lecture. It's a one-way street. It's not like that at all. But it's highly interactive, and he was a, just a natural to encourage the guys and back and forth. So the point of the matter is, he turned out to be the Goldilocks. You understand? It, you know, he's the one who the students ended up liking, and the Hanhala liked. The lover. He lover. So he became Durasheba over there because in him you had, as I said before, first of all, a gong. Second of all, he knows how to give a sheer. Third of all, he's got that fun thing so... Guys like that. You need that to, be, to, to have charisma as a Magad as a Rosh Yeshiva. He was a Chassid. He was from beyond belief. Okay? You can have fun and learning still be very from. You know, he used to take a Chatzos. he's <laughs> you know, a real Chassid over there. I mean, the real thing. Uh, but it can be fun. Not the take a Chatzos, but I'm saying the learning. Uh, so you know what I mean? No, it was, he was a good package. It was a good shirach. So they tried a lot of shidduchim, that's why I see it was like a Goldilocks. The bed wasn't too long, the bed wasn't too short, but by him it came out just right. And this is what he did for the rest of his life, meaning, this was like 1935. It took a while for the yeshiva to go through all these other candidates, and each one, you know, six months here, six months there, and to turn out that it was not a good shidduch until they finally got him. And when he agreed that he came over there and the students liked him, he was in until the Holocaust killed everybody. So from 1935, something like that, to 1940, the war, as you know, starts in September 39, and Hitler took over the country one, two, three. So already by October 1939, Lublin is under the Germans, and you know all that terrible stuff. But for those four, or five years, uh, he had a good run. You know what I'm saying he had a good run, and uh, he's st- mind you, not only was he Hasidish, he was a Hasid, meaning he was. A chassid of the Sachachovars. You know, when when Navne Nezer died, he was a chassid, like humble and all that, with that Shemashmo. When the Shemashmo died, it was the next one. And when the next one died in 1920s, it was the next one. He went once to Israel. I read this once in 1935, I guess, or something like that. Right around the time he became Bathsheba in in Lublin, and uh, with the Sachachachov Rebbe, because the Rebbe is visiting Palestine. And he went not see it. I met with him. You know, for a trip. Unfortunately, he should have stayed. Who knew? Who knew? And uh I'm talking in nineteen thirty five. And so therefore, uh he brought his particular style of learning, which was the Central Polish, so I called the belly button Polish uh style of learning. And that is what you see in the you know, I mean those like you know, those types you were know, four very charifistic. It's a is to you come up with Hamzos all the time. Uh, highly unusual uh, chedushim, sometimes really unusual chedushim, which I imagine is why some of the Magad-shirs, uh I mean the dafyoni people, like him, uh, because all kind of all kind of things. Now, what's interesting is that he's someone who's giving a Lam de Shashir, Polish style, known as harifas, lamdush Shashir, um, probably four or five times a week, and they had this. And Chachmid uh, Lubin was the Polish-Hungarian style, which he had weekly bechinas, not like the Litvish yeshivas. So he had a full plate, okay? But, to me it's just interesting that in 1939, he published his uh, response, uh, his Shalos and Chubas. was kind of interesting. And this, as I say before, is very un-Litvish, because in Lithuania, the, the, the Rosh Yeshiva, who is clearly a Rosh Yeshiva, doesn't publish Shalos and Chubas unless... Their are shalas and shubas, which is long disguised as shalas and shubas. Sometimes you find by the literature they call it shalas and shubas. But, you know, it's the, the shalas, answer me, this Rambam. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh for cash on I'm talking about everyday real life things. And uh, this he publishes the Eretz Tzvi just before the Holocaust. So in that regard, you could say, if you understand what I mean, he got lucky. Because if he waited another year all this would be lost and burned and destroyed and all that. We wouldn't know anything about him. I mean, we'd know about him, but you know what I mean. He wouldn't have hit the charts. Because <laughs> clearly, his, the, the knowledge, at least as far as I know, I'm not, I'm not Hasidic, so maybe people have some swarm of his torah and all that. But to get out there in the broad Broadveld, uh, it was the, tshubis, okay? uh, the uh What's it called? The Eretz the Tzvi. It's the Tshuvis. And I have to tell you the truth. Uh, I don't have to tell you the truth, but I'm going to tell you. Uh, I first heard of him uh, 30 years ago, something like that. Uh, you'd be, you're going to laugh at what I'm saying. In the, uh, in the old Hebrew college library, they used to have, at that time I didn't own them, the books of Reb And later I bought it in Israel. And Reb Zeman, who you know I'm a, a big chassid of, uh, has a volume... In uh, among his many books, of book reviews of Shalas and Shubis. Only Zevin can do this. It's unbelievable. It's like the New York Times book. I'm serious. Like the New York Times book review, book reviews of Charles and Shubis. And I went through it because he writes so well and so clearly it's, it's a Mechaia. And these are book reviews that Rabbi Zevin uh, published in newspaper, in the Mizrahi newspaper, actually, fair way back in the 30s and 40s and that kind of thing, then later in 1950, in the late 50s, I believe, so he put them all together in a single volume. And one of them, and they're brilliant, because them is a the brilliant essayist. And one of them was there to me. I remember this. And then I said, who is this? A classical, I don't know, interesting. And if you're interested at all in the person I'm talking about today, you got to get a hold of the... Uh, book review about five, six, seven pages of Zeven of the Shas and Shubh's in his sefer called Sofrim Musform It's probably on the Hebrew, excuse me, it's probably on the Hebrew books online, probably. And uh, he, uh, I don't know what year he published it because he talks about the Machabah being dead, so it must be either during or right after the Holocaust. And it's, it's Gavaldic. The, uh and you, and you get their bird's eye view of who the Machabah was specifically in terms of the Sefer that he wrote. And in the inimitable Zevin style, he immediately says that, um, you know, the book is organized mostly Archaim and, and uh, more than any other part. And he would, he said, I would classify them into uh, four types. Really, it's three, but Zeven was Zionist. And one is Yeshubi Menhagim, the other one is Shalos Mechudashos, the third one is Shalos Eretz Yisrael, and the fourth one is Stamshalas. And then he goes and give examples of that. And when he says over here, you should be Minhagim, this is very well known. Uh, the Kajaglover is, these are shylists that he got from people all during his career. And he says clearly in the introduction that I've reworked them and edited them. So sometimes they're not exactly the way they were sent to me all the time. Some are and some aren't. And this is always a problem for historians in dealing with responsive literature. Um uh, this is a what we call a methodological epistemological problem, and that is me, a historian, if I read something in the chuba, how do I know it's true? Not only do I how do I know it's true, how do I know the Shiloh is the way the person said it is? Maybe he reworked it to uh you know, art scrollize it, or change the names for certain reasons, or give it a twist here and there. This is a very good question. I'm speaking now from a scientific, methodological, historical thing. If I see something in the of Behuda, if I see something in Suvatharajah, how do I know what I'm seeing is transparent? Uh, maybe it was changed, and it's true, by the way. And our Machaber today, our hero, says some of these Shalas are, are not exactly manufactured, but have seven or eight questions, and I rolled them into one to make it easier to write about it. So the way the Shalas asked is not exactly the way he got it. So just keep that in mind. Having said that, it's a double you do up. And here again is is something that I encountered many, many years ago, that um, one of the things he's into is uh, saying, you know, what your parents and grandparents did is actually not wrong. Uh, I experienced this, and maybe you did also. He grew up in a house, FFB, he grew up in a house, and they used to do this or that on Chavez, and and kosh, this and the other. Okay, that's how you were raised. And then you go off the issue and you see me start reading books, Colt's Farm. And then you see, you know, you're, at, you're not supposed to do this. Then you see that that's actually not allowed. And this thing is also, and that thing is this. And then you say, oh my God, what kind of house did I grow up in? You know, when I was young, we did this, and my mother told me to do that, and my father this and that and the other. You get what I'm saying? And then, if you get older, and you read more, become more widely than just a. Reading the Chayonim or the Kitchen Shachonok or the Mishabur, or something like that, and you see, oh, this and this thing. Actually, the Chazanish says you can do this, and the other one says you can do that, and the other one says you can do this and that and the other. I'm just, I'll tell you something off the top of my head. You know, just I'm I'm just sitting here bloviating. Uh, now, I'm making this up. Really, in my family, we always like four cups of wine at the Seder. Uh, what about the grape juice? So, uh, uh, let's say it was, let's say I grew up with, with the grape juice. So, and people say, well, you know, it's not really right. I mean, okay, if you definitely need it, but it's better to do it with the wine. And then you wonder, so my parents were modernish, that they all had the grape juice? And then, you mean Peskitsch, was actually the Chazanich used the grape juice, and the uh, Briskarov used the grape juice, and this one, that, and the other. All of a sudden you say, guess, I guess my parents were from after all. Do you get what I'm, you, you hear what I'm saying? Do you get the word? And so... I told you already a story that happened with me and Namara once, so I I in the Mara once. You know, these kind of stories. You see a lot of this in the Arab street. It's very charming, actually. It's very charming. He says, you know, this custom that people do, it's actually, it can be defended. It, there's, there's a basis for it. Um, uh, here's a very famous one uh, that I heard of when I was young, also. Uh, you know, with the, with the Shalach What if you forget to give the Shalach in time? You give it, after you know, at nighttime when when Purim's over, apparently a lot of people used to do that in the old country, and the has the whole thing. Well, really, you can you can justify it, uh, you know, based on this far and this far, and he's very Harifous in in the hamzos that he comes up to defend these ideas. Um, what about people who dominate, late, well, like like the Hasidim? How do you, how do you justify that? Uh, you know, uh, people with the small tits, I remember or something. In other words. Hear, hear, closely what I'm about to tell you. From Jews who do things that don't sound exactly like it's in conformity with, shall we say, to use modern terminology, with the Mishnah Berurah. You, you follow? Um, are they right? Are they wrong? Does everybody following a wrong minhag? Uh, and he always is saying like this: I'm not telling you to do this, but those who do it have what to rely on, and they certainly do. That's that's a very interesting way of trying to to say. The Hanhog the people have the, the Pasha de the Giddin are Bubbies and Zaydis and all that, who are good people, they're not actually making a mistake. What they're doing is is grounded in uh in sound halachic theory and in Talmudic theory. And his efforts to, to to justify them are rather charming uh, uh and, and and very uh as they say, charifistic. Now, uh this is a wonderful quality. What do I mean? I told you before somebody's looking at me and they say, you know, my town, everybody does this and this and this. The Derek uh, will say like this, well, I'm sure they're following, you know, the opinion of, the if you're a from this, that, and the other, and you add this for the toasts here, and that thing over there. And then the guy doesn't feel so bad. Now, he's not saying, go and do it. He's saying, those who do it have what to rely on. Avadikavist, he'd probably say like this, have a big tits. you understand? Avadikavist, I can tell you before anything, he delivered his Shalach on time, and remember he has a thing can you use a cotton to carry for you on Shabbos which is very common and he has all well and they used to do it, you understand, know I was raised like that I used to do it, and uh, you know he'll, he'll show you the defense of that and uh, uh, I, mean, I mean a lot of things the best one is can you, <laughs> listen, you'll be you'll be shocked what I'm about to tell you he will say, he'll tell you how it's okay to watch TV on Shabbos provided it was turned on before Shabbos now, it's before the TV says the radio. He'll tell you how you can listen to the radio on Shabbos. He's not telling you in Poland in 1929, go listen to the radio on Shabbos. But those who, whatever reason, find themselves doing it or whatever, uh, so the question then becomes, in in, in, in nitty-gritty, halachic question, is this okay? I don't say it's okay. Now, this shows you, he lived at a time with a very firm alum that he's dealing with. He wasn't worried that some... Avi Weiss guy is going to take it and run with the ball. This is what we're worried about nowadays. If you give a... You can really find a answer for anything. I know it sounds funny I'm saying so, but I'm talking about a Lamdin. A Lamdin Muvik, a Gon, can find a answer for anything. You stitch this together with that. And I do mean that, I hear of. I remember saying, if you look in Sharmat Ziyon Malocha, you see that a lot when the Makhaber wants to, he can put together all kind of hat You see it in the Reshlam Zarbach with the defense of the... uh, Exiled on Shabbos, you know, in the Shmir Shabbos, Kol Chaza, you, you, you can do it. But the, the, the things like this should you do it or should you not do it? Nowadays, in the time you and I are living, it's dangerous because we have all these left wingers and they'll, whatever you say, they'll use as justification to go farther and to make real trouble. You understand? So the Das Torah is, you know, don't go, don't go and explain it. Um, but he didn't live in that environment. Even very from Hasidic Poland, even though Hasidism and all this was in a certain crisis because of World War One and the aftermath, but nevertheless things were pretty doggone from. And the Shiva movement that he was part of was trying to make a rebound. And we, you and I, will never know: had Hitler not happened, would the Frum come back kicking and screaming, in other words, like gangbusters, or would they have never succeeded in re- in recapturing the twenty percent of the population they lost, and maybe even more? that's a great question. There is very, I, that is an assignment I would give a graduate student uh, to do a paper on, because there is material that can argue both ways. Uh, but this business, the Rav Zeben calls Yishuvim uh, and Hagim is a wonderful part of, the, uh, of his Shalus and Shabbos. And again, like I said before, you can compare and contrast. To me, to me, he's, you, he's the opposite of Chayoram. Because the Chayonim is always saying like this, what the Hamonim does is all wrong, and these guys are dummies, and the uh, ratsim, and unfortunately that's the way it is, and the people shouldn't do it this way, and I'm going to tell you how you should do it, whether it's in Hilchah Shabbos, or Pesach, or Kashvosh, or this and the other, and, and the Tisha of the Hamonim is doing it wrong here, and davening there, and so forth. And then you see, the Hasidic, I think you see the, uh, the Kajal lover say, no, actually what they're doing can be justified. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What they're doing is based as I said before, in the ptosis. What they said, based on, on a yesod, and he, a lot of times he does like a yesod, based on a, a diak or something like that. And Reb Zevin is, uh, is really wonderful uh, here. And let me open the book here. One second, don't go anywhere. Yishuvim become a motzim ma If you look, Reb Zemin says, through this farm, down the ages, you'll find here and there that the mechabra will justify... Uh, a, a local practice. Even though, as I said before, it doesn't seem to conform what, what you and I today would call the Mishnah bura. I will mita gedusha kazuv a But not like this guy. Not like the Eretz Uh No one takes it on so many of them. He sees, it's usually the 1910s and 20s and 30s he's writing in. And he's trying to help, the, he's the, like, like I told you before, the friend of the little man, right? Or perhaps I should say the friend of the local rav, because he's trying to help out what he can to be miyashiv, that it shouldn't be a fight, and that don't classify people as mechal Shabbos, as not firm and all the rest of it. Now, I repeat, there's no question that his lechachil option is different. But the world isn't composed of lechachil options. And Shalots and shuvas rarely deal, except perhaps nowadays, with, uh, you know, Brain Brock. But Shalots never deal with lechachil options. They're always dealing with vidieva situations. And the question is, what will the market bear? And it's a wonderful uh, safer in, the, in, in that particular regard, at least in my opinion. All I ever give you is my opinion. Uh, you should read, Rabbi Zemin has pages of this, and it's all wonderful stuff. It's all, so, and, and he gives you some of his svaris, and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, people watch the Dalim do, doesn't do right, and uh, how come women don't Dalim, and, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, one thing after another. Um, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're really cute. Um, now, whew, and he says, uh, you know, I see thousands of people do this, and that's why I want to I make it that they're not, they're not all wrong. I, myself, became interested in their speed because I'm a coin. Oh, about 25, 27 years ago, more. If you're a Cohen, you have a problem flying to Israel. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't know this. Those of you who are not going not give a darn. It's not a okay to you. Because from time to time, you have L.L. issues and other issues. And I'm not talking only about... First of all, one issue has to do with when they carry a body on the, on the, on the plane. That's one thing. The coffins. Those of you who are not going them, don't even bother with this. And the second is, if you fly over a grave... Like, uh, years ago, they were flying over in Cholon, the Jewish cemetery. And it's not so pushit, you know, because it could be, oh, hell... And uh, what do you do over there? I remember somebody referred me, uh, a friend of mine in Baltimore, long ago, he said, look at me." He has this question in 1939, can you fly in Europe and you're flying over cemeteries or whatever. And he says, I'll give you seven heters. <laughs> now, you can look at that two ways. Uh, anybody who needs seven heterim shows it's all schwach. Or you can say like this, He should a hector. if one falls, you got the other. And he meant it, like I say, in the best way possible. Again, it's clear from, if you read the tshuva, he would prefer that the person go on an airplane or not go on an airplane that doesn't fly over a cemetery. Right? If it's possible. But, if you're asking about the person who has to do it, you know, can you be, can you justify it? And he said yes. I remember it was the rabbi in Switzerland. Uh, I think it was a Talmud of his. And, um, that's my approach. This has been quoted a lot of times. I tell you the truth. I sat down now. To do it, I just opened the Sharm el Malacha. I said, I know, I remember I sing it over there on the Sharm el-Seyan Malacha about Hilda's was Kohanim because that's what I have to deal with. I'm a coin. And uh, it wasn't there. I can't remember where I saw the Eretz first brought down. But it's a very, very nice uh, tshuva. Yeah. Like I say, you have Hetter der Chrishon, Hetter and so on and so forth. And Rav Zevin, I remember, has what he calls weird Shilas. And one of them was Bocher told that there's a guy who's in the hospital in Poland who bought Mozar beside you mean I'm not a cardiologist. I have to ask my friend Dr. Insel. He said they found when they did x-ray, I guess his heart is in the wrong place. Now, it's not on the left side, it's on the right side, and does that mean there he should switch his fill because you know it could be negative leave. um that's a strange business. And in general, right, in general, he uh, is conveying a lot of over there. So there's a certain type of person that's a fan of their street, I can tell you. And uh, because you find all kind of harifish suarez and they're in real life situations. And as I say before, I think this really put them on the map for those who are into this kind of stuff. Uh, they recently reprinted a set, but really was basically the old thing. Now, I'm not a, uh, a casual lover, uh, you know, fanatic or anything, so maybe they included extra things here and they did not notice. But, uh, you know, I'm still waiting for the, uh, the deluxe uh, copy to come out with the footnotes and all the rest of it, because it's a lot of fun. You read his style of writing, you see he's having fun. And that's the Simcha over there. And, uh, you know, sometimes people write Spharm Chuba's very uh, solemn uh, kind of mood, and all the rest of it. And they're complaining, oh, yeah, Mama's Bavoda, and times are hard, and this is bad. Uh, he doesn't really like that. He likes this. And three, as I say, three Mosheikh. You understand? So it's really, I think, this personal quality comes across in the uh, writings. And that's what's got him, I think, a lot of fans. Now, he has, remember, I told you before, he was a Rav also and a Hasidic rov, not a, not a rabbit but a rove. And so he gave these, uh, you know, like the rabbis do, the you know, the Torah, and so forth. And a lot of these end up in these other forms that he wrote. I've seen them here and there. I remember one, uh, which is cute, and that is Kamsa uh, Bar You know the story, obviously, in in B'Av, Kamtza Bar Kamtza. And, you know, there was a guy who's how's it go? One guy was Kamsa, the other was bar and they invited the wrong guy. And that started the whole mess. Uh, now, isn't it funny that one guy was named Kamsa, the other was bar So, the regular way you learn it is, Anakhanami, you know? One guy was named Cone, and the other guy was named Khan. You know, whatever. It could be. It's possible. One guy was named Abrams, and the other was named Abrams' son. It could be. And uh, that was a goof of why the mix-up occurred, and so on, and so on and so, on, and so forth. By the way, from a history perspective, I shouldn't even throw this in. It's, a, it's a very problematical pers- uh, story, simply because if you read Josephus, the leader, one of the leaders of the bad groups, of the Agrippa followers, was a guy whose name was Kamsas Bar Kamsas. That was his name, Kamsas Bar Komsas, which sounds like it's one guy. So there's oh, a whole mabuch with this. But the marshal, you know, says Kamsa Bar Komsa was father and son. It was Kamsa and Bar Komsa. And I remember the Kajuk has the whole thing that they invited the wrong, you know, one of them was friends, and the other one was the son of the friend. But it turns out the father, I think, was the friend. But the father really hated the host. And he conveyed that to the son. And when the son came, he acted an obnoxious way, and the guy threw him out. Something like that. So My very harifistic way of going through the story, Kamsa by Kamsa. That kind of thing. So if you're that type, <coughs> which a lot of people are, it's not the Litvin's style, But that big deal. You know, a big deal. Um, if you like that style then he's the man. Now, as I said, life is strange, and he had just four years. From 35 to 39, he ran the yeshiva. The boys liked him. Yeshiva started taking off. They never got rid of their money problems, but, you know, they had uh, committees try to raise the money for them and all the rest of it. And to the best of my knowledge, he didn't have to involve himself with the money raising. So that was good. So he could devote himself full-time to the yeshiva stuff. He gave up being a rub of a town. Uh, he became, like you say, Rashiva of a place. I don't know if he had deputy magistrates, but look at all the big people that came out from that from the thirties that learned under him. You know, Rosner and Arsprung and all the others. You know, they obviously, you know, he uh, was a, a good mechanic and he inspired guys. He inspired them. So he must have had this uh, winning uh, personality. But then the whole thing was closed down because Hitler came in, and. Um, they were terrible, you know, obviously. You know, they came to the Chacham and the yeshiva had 20,000 sparm library, and the Nazis burned it in, in, in front of the yeshiva building, like you, like they did in the Inquisition, back, you know, in, back in the 1200s in Paris. And I remember the German newspapers were making fun. All oh, the Jews were crying and wailing, and they thought that's a lot of fun and all of that. So that's who these Moms there were. And then he ended up in the ghetto, and then they uh, eventually sent him to what it was a mighty neck, you know, one of his extermination places. I don't know if you know this or not. Most of the concentration camps were not concentration camps. They are extermination camps. He got off the train. Five minutes later, you're in the gas chamber. You know, that's, that's the way he went. And he, unfortunately, was one of those. He had relatives that survived the war. I remember he had a brother who lived in Israel. And he helped, you know, publish some of the stuff. But um, he, his, his fame is coming from the writings Claims coming from the writings. So uh, here's somebody, that, but I wish I knew better, it's, um, and I'm not sure historically even get at this. You know, what exactly was the style of learning in the Lin that evolved during his four years? Maybe it wasn't there long enough. Was he mechadish a new thing from between the interaction between him and the students? Did they come out with a unique? Chachn Leblin way of learning. You and I generally think of Kachman Leblin as these unbelievable became. This is a Galtzioner board. You know they know whole shots by heart, the pin test and all the rest of it. I'm not saying it's not true. I don't know. It could very well be, but it's got to be more than that. And uh, maybe in future we'll discover this. Uh, at least I can only tell you what I know so far. So. uh... This is a, uh unusual person, but I think the best thing to take away from him, unless you read the but then you'll have fun, is this idea of fun. That's what it seems to me. Uh, the, the, we can only succeed as parents and grandparents in getting the young generation into learning if we make it fun. Uh, and I don't mean you dumb it down or anything like that at all, but it's got to be that the experience of learning is a fun experience. Uh because we live in a society when everything else is, you, you know, you, there's so many things to entertain you with. It's got to be the person. like this. I, I know I can go on the internet, I you know like this, but I'd rather learn this with this and this, this year, because it's fun. It's the, like I said before, the Egli Talsa has the highest Madrega, and he was a person of that type. Okay, have a good day.